0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, Hope Resurrected, a journey through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Well, peace be with you. All right, it's good to see you. If you are a first-time guest, we wanted to say uh, welcome. We are glad that you are here. My name is Pastor Jamal. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the uh, privilege of just uh, explaining what we uh, just heard and uh, preaching God's word to you. Uh, Sojourn is a church that is striving to be a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-social and economical people who are living for the glory of Christ. We seek to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them uh, back to their neighborhoods and to the nations um, equipped to do ministry. So uh, let's pray, and then we're going to go ahead and dive into today's passage. Lord, your people know your voice and a stranger they will not follow. Would you shepherd your people through me as I preach your word to them? Would you give them the grace to receive it not as a human message, But as God's message, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 says, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray and the church said, amen. Amen. Well, this week, an article was published in churchleaders.com, on churchleaders.com entitled, when 12,000 evangelical leaders saturated Louisville, was a gospel impression left. The article covered the experiences of seven food establishments, which included restaurants, fast food chains, and coffee shops to see how workers experienced the mass number of people downtown for the week as a result of the Christian conference. Towards the end of the article, the authors write. When we completed our quests after interviewing people who worked at these establishments, we remarked at how troubling it was that most of the establishments busy with T4G, it's an acronym for the conference, attendees couldn't tell us why the mass amount of people were there. How is it that thousands of those whom God has entrusted to teach his sheep about his word share his gospel throughout their everyday encounters and make disciples that didn't leave a gospel impression on the establishments that they frequently visited, letting them know that they were there for the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this isn't a critique of the T4G conference. It's a wake-up call about how vital it is that we live, express, and verbally tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you you to Google and find that article. It's a a great article, but even as you read the article, we want to be aware that we could argue that some people uh, did have a great experience because of their encounter of people who came to the conference. I'm pretty sure that there were some who represented Christ well and even shared the gospel. We also uh, could Imagine that people who had positive experiences weren't likely interviewed, or that some of the people who were interviewed were jaded against Christians, which impaired their experience knowing um, that they were Christians. You could also uh, contribute possibly some of the negativity that was received in the article as a result that 12,000 people were downtown, 12,000 more than normal and that the people who were being interviewed were overwhelmed as a result of this busy schedule and long lines. But at the end of the day, I believe that the writer's conclusion is true. Churches need a wake-up call, and it's vital that we get one so that we live, express, and verbally tell people About the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially in today's reality, where non Christians often dismiss the claims of the gospel by pointing to the lack of integrity that many believers exemplify. They are expectedly, especially quick to ridicule Christian celebrity pastors who preach out of a selfish desire for human praise or financial gain, who find themselves entangled in scandal. And I think that this text that we're looking at today does a beautiful job by looking at Paul's lifestyle, the way that he lived, the way that he expressed, the way that he verbalized, the way that he embodied the message of the gospel. And as we look at today's text, I think that we will get a blueprint for what it looks like to live with the integrity of the gospel. What does it look like to embody the gospel in such a way that it leaves a positive impression of people, an aroma that could lead to Christ? And so my prayer is that as we consider the example of Paul, that the Holy Spirit will cultivate in us a lifestyle of gospel integrity that that leads us to love and to care for people well. In fact, I want to argue today that as we cultivate a heart of integrity, that it will be demonstrated in how we care for people, how we are intentional with people, knowing that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And so as I make that argument, I just want to put before you two simple movements of today's sermon. The first is going to be found in verses 1 through 6, and it is just, I want to show you um, a compelling picture of gospel integrity. We're going to look at this by looking at the example of Paul. And then second, a compelling picture of transformational gospel care. And I would even say we can substitute transformational gospel care out for the word intentional gospel care. And again, we want to look at how embracing the gospel with integrity will flow out in such a way that it will demonstrate deep care and love for those that we encounter. Now, when we talk about integrity, we can talk about it in many ways. The word integrity simply means to to live with honesty that is uh, supported by strong moral principles. Uh, It means to be whole and undivided. Some people will call integrity wholeheartedness, which is a word that has kind of picked up over the years. Um, But I would argue that along with that, integrity also just simply means walking worthy of the gospel. Living in such a way, as Paul says in the text, in verse 12, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to live worthy of God, to live in line with the kingdom of God. And so let's look at this compelling picture of gospel integrity by looking at verse 1, and we're just going to simply walk through these 12 verses together. And at the end of verse 6, I'm going to give us some application. At the end of verse 12, I'm going to give us some application. Verse 1, Paul says, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that." Our visit with you was not without result. Now, Paul is pointing us uh, back to what he just argued in verses 1 through 12, that the gospel went forth in a powerful way, chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, because it was implanted in the hearts of the church of Thess, um, because they received what Paul was preaching, not as a word for man, but as a word for God. And what was the result of them receiving the word of God? Um, in a healthy way. It was that virtue was created in them. Uh, Faith, hope, and love, and that the word of God rang out from them, sounded out from them in such a way that the people of Macedonia and Achaia heard of it. In verse 2, on the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. So, Paul again is reminding them that they were in Philippi. And notice what he said here they were mistreated. But how were they mistreated? You look at the text, two words outrageously and with great opposition. And Paul is driving the church at this because they too are being persecuted. If we read on in verses 12 through 16, we'll see that they are being persecuted by uh, their. Uh, own uh, uh, people, uh, the people in which they uh, did religious life and life with, um, who uh, were opposed to the the gospel of Jesus Christ um, at that time. And so Paul is writing them to encourage them. But he's also saying that by nature of receiving the gospel, even though he was facing great opposition, he was emboldened by the Spirit of God to preach the gospel to preach the gospel. Verse three, and this is where we get into gospel integrity. Look at this. Four, our exhortation, our preaching didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. So Paul, will see here, he's going to make an argument for gospel integrity uh, first by pointing it out in a negative way by saying, as a result of receiving the gospel, we preached it in a way that it did not look like this. But why was Paul able to preach the gospel with integrity? Well, it's because he received a call from God. The text says he was approved by God. And what is this call? This call was to steward the gospel like a running back who is receiving a football in, um, on the goal line. He takes it, he brings it in, he protects it in order to get the gospel to uh, the next place. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, to pass it on to others as he received it without fumbling it. Paul said, this is what I was called to do. And so as a result, with this gospel, I didn't do some things. And what did he not do? He says in verse 3, He didn't come preaching the gospel from error, right? He didn't edit the gospel or from impurity. This word error uh, points us to uh, the fact that Paul wanted to make sure that he presented the gospel in its purest form and that he did not add to it. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says this as he charged Timothy, be diligent to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. Or as the King James Version said, rightly dividing the word of truth. When Paul came to the church at Thess, he came with a message and he believed that that message was the power of God and that it would lose its power if he diluted it. There was an old commercial, old, old commercial um, called Prego, uh, for a spaghetti sauce called Prego. Y'all remember that? Um, And earlier in the first service, I didn't look up. I just remembered the spaghetti uh, thing, and I was like, I think it's called, it was either Prego or Ragu, so I just called it Prego to kind of merge the two. But it was an old, old commercial, I remember as a child, where the mother was over the stove and she opens up a jar um, of spaghetti sauce and she puts it on top of the spaghetti. Some of y'all remember this? And the son comes up and the father and they're like looking over his shoulder. And the son's like, but mom, I like it when your spaghetti sauce. And she was like, oh, it's just as good as my sauce. And he's like, oh, but is it a in it? And he's like, She's like, it's in the sauce. He's like, but, oh, is it meat in it? She's like, it's in the sauce. And she just keeps naming things. And he's, he's like, it's in the sauce. This sauce is as good as my sauce, if not better. And she's trying to convince him that canned spaghetti sauce can be good. Well, Paul is saying, listen, when I came to you, I came with the word of God. And I didn't have to change it, dilute it. Or present it to you in an impure matter because I believe that the power is in the sauce. <laughs> the gospel is the power of God until salvation is in the sauce. The word of God is able to make the soul wise It's in the sauce. The word is able to conform us into the image of the most beautiful being in all the universe, which is Jesus Christ is in the sauce. The word is able to correct our thoughts and to... Make us a holy and whole. It's in the sauce. And here's the thing is that some of us, we uh, come to the word of God and we don't believe in its power. We dilute it, we change it, or we listen to people preaching and we hope that they can entertain us or present something to us that is new and mysterious uh, because we have lost confidence in the gospel itself. No longer believing that what changes us is that good old story about a man who was fully man and fully God, who lived a perfect life and died the death that we deserve and rose on the third day with all power and who has ascended on the right hand side of the Father, interceding for us and who left uh, for us his spirit, which indwells his church. It has given us, through means of grace, the tools that we need for life and godliness. Somebody say it's in the sauce. Here in the text, we see that Paul says, listen, I didn't come uh, preaching in a way that could bring error. I cut it straight or impurity. I didn't come seeking to woo you with my speech so that I can actually, this word uh, could be also used to talk about sexual impurity in order to woo people in the audience to use them for my benefit. Or what they intend to deceive, this word deceive was often used to, uh, to speak of bait that would be put on a hook to catch a fish. And what is Paul doing? He is uh, most likely comparing himself To philosophers and teachers in the Roman world and in the Greek world, who would be itinerant teachers who would come to town, they would boast about themselves, they would come and present some new philosophy, they would hone their speech down to where it was impeccable and uh, entertaining and as clear as possible. But their goal was not to uh, build people up, obviously, uh, and point them to Jesus, but rather it was to make a buck. It was to make a dollar. It was to build their own empire. And Paul says, No, when I came to you, I came with integrity. I didn't come with you with bait to draw you into myself, but rather I came with the gospel to present you to God. So he says, and he goes on, and I'll just pause there and say, Man, that's made the Lord form a people and a church. That wants to hear the word cut straight may he form and raise up pastors and and Bible teachers men and women who have their confidence in his word in his ability to transform lives believing that it's in the sauce and that the batteries are included now notice what he says here as he's Continues his argument. He says, listen, we were entrusted with this word, with this gospel, this good news. It's not good advice. It's good news. It's a proclamation that points us to Jesus. And notice what he says. Not to please people, but rather God. Not to please people, but rather God. This is huge. This is what fueled Paul's ministry. It's pleasing God. We know he says the same thing in Galatians chapter one, living for God's glory. He says that in verse six, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Paul was able to say this because Christ captured his heart and he turned his heart away from idols and away from himself to, as we read in chapter one, the one true living God. And as God captures our heart and as we abide in Christ, we begin to live more and more, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ. Psalm 15 and one says, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love. Matthew five sixteen, let your light so shine that men may see your good works, but glorify your God who is in heaven. This is the way that Christ is calling us to live, to do good works, to live before other people for the glory of Christ in such a way that people look to us, see our works that lead them to look to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10 31, whatever you eat or drink, you do it for the glory of God. Now, what does it practically mean to live not to please people, but rather to live for God's glory? And I was thinking about this heart this week. And I came up with a list as I first was going through my observations of the text. And then I was like, Jamal, it's in the sauce. You don't even have to make it up. Let's see what Paul has to say about it. And he spells out four, four, And notice he says, who examines the heart. And that's gospel integrity, knowing that we do these things from the heart to God, knowing that God is the one who is examining the heart. Four, we never use flattery speech, as you know. What does it mean to live for the will of God and not for people? It's to watch our speech and to make sure we're not flattering others. Now, what's the difference from flattery and encouragement? Okay. Flattery at the end of the day is speaking to others, normally in a very demonstrative way. Um, In a way that seems like encouragement. But what differentiates flattery from encouragement is the motive and the goal. The goal of flattery is to say something to someone, to draw them to you, or to give yourself something. Or to get something from them. So I'm going to flatter, I'm going to compliment you. Because at the end of the day, I need you to like me. I need you to approve me. I need you to be pleased with me. I need to be justified by things going well with you. I need you to think well of me. Whereas encouragement, which is good, and which we should be doing to believers and and for believers regularly, Hebrews chapter three, encourage each other daily. The goal is not to get something from someone, but rather is to build them up in Christ is to spur them on to good works. You see the difference? Paul tells the church of Thess, when I came to you, I came preaching the gospel in such a way not to draw you to me so that I can build my own empire, kingdom, or to gain something from you, but so that you can be built up in Christ, so that you can be encouraged in your walk in the kingdom of God. I didn't use bait. I didn't use trickery. I cut it straight. Now, let me say this. Paul talks about how he came and preached Christ to him crucified. And even in our preaching, that's what we come to preach. And the goal in our preaching should be to edify, to build people up, Colossians 1:29, to form people into little Jesus, disciples of Christ. And to do that as preachers, we should give our best effort to know the text, to explain it, to illustrate it, to apply it. We are preaching the glories of Jesus. We are preaching about the most beautiful uh, being in all creation who has, is eternally existent and who is a part of the Godhead through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of the Father and, and the triune God. We should make sure that we try our hardest to make it interesting, clear, and helpful. But Paul is saying, and I believe when he's talking about preaching Christ and Christ crucified, we should never do so in such a way that when people walk away, they can walk away saying, man, Jamal is awesome. Even as we explain, even as we illustrate, even as we apply, we want to do so. And God helped me to do so in such a way that people understand that I think that Jesus is awesome. And I'm doing my best to make him known, not me. And Paul says, I didn't come gassing people up so that I can benefit from them being enamored with me. I didn't come living to impress them because I had greedy motives. I didn't come living, seeking my own glory, but rather the glory of God. And so as we pause and just reflect on this gospel integrity, I just want to encourage you to make sure that as you engage God's word, that you are engaging God's word with confidence that the gospel is the power of God until salvation. As verses 13 through 14 says, that you're looking at the church of Thessalonians as a, as a model, um, just like the Bereans who took the word of God serious where they checked to make sure what was being preached to them was the message. I want to encourage you as God's beloved to be careful to watch and to see whose table you are eating off of. There are preachers who um, are incredibly gifted in preaching but who have uh, a lot of truth or half truths in there mixed in with just things that are not helpful, things that are straight kernel. And there's a sense in which you want to be able to chew up the meat and spit out the bones. But if that is a part of your diet, that fast food, it is going to have an impact on you. It's going to shape the way you think about God, the way you think about yourself and the way you think about others. So pray, Lord, help protect my heart, grow my heart to where I want to hear the good news about Jesus, not about a preacher, not about a false life, not about my best life now, but my best life now in Christ Jesus, who promises abundant life amid suffering, amid social diminishment, amid a falling world. Y'all with me? All right. Verse 7, we're going to go to our next point. We're going to look at a compelling picture of gospel care. We got a a compelling picture of gospel integrity. We don't dilute the word. um, We don't skim over it. We don't... uh, presented with error for our own benefit. We don't flatter others, even as we share the gospel with others, hoping that they would think we're cool or s- smarter than everyone else in order to get them to love Jesus. No, we, we go to them with integrity. We cultivate a heart of integrity that has confidence in the word and we present that to others. And then from cultivating a heart that loves God and that lives for his glory, As a result, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, of looking into the glorious face of Jesus, this is how this is shaped in us. This is how this is formed in us. I'm going to, before I go here, I want to say this, all right? Uh, This point won't let me go. The way in which we come to live for the glory of Christ and not for the glory of ourselves is by looking into the face of Jesus. I believe we have this uh, uh, on the slide, too. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And so Paul has made an argument in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2 that God is taking um, his people from one degree of glory to the next. Uh, glory. The first glory is a glory that knew God through the law. The second glory, as Moses uh, knew God through a veiled face, the second glory is the glory that comes through the new covenant in knowing Jesus Christ. And so he goes on and he talks about how God lets light shine out of darkness and made his light shine in our hearts. Look at this. The light of the knowledge of God's glory being displayed in the face of Jesus. How do we go from glorifying self to glorifying God is by keeping our eyes on the face of Jesus. By abiding Christ. By setting our minds on the things that are above and not the things that are below. Even as a pastor this week, as I was just thinking about the weightiness of this text, I got nervous. I'm like, man, Lord, I can present your word in a way that has error. And I just became nervous even about preaching this Sunday and almost obsessive to make sure I understood and was saying clearly. right? And there's sometimes I'm going to fail that sometimes I stand before you and my heart isn't right. I want you to be pleased. I want you to be proud of your pastor. I want you to feel fed and, and the glory of Christ, the glory of God can go to the backdrop. And I'm sure that you do the same thing in your your life. You want a heart of pure motives. You want to present Jesus in a way where it's not about you and about others. And the way in which we grow in that is by keeping our eyes on Jesus, but it's also by looking to Jesus and knowing that we will fail at doing this. But that as we fail, we don't have to live in fear and guilt or in shame because one, Jesus, Jesus lived a life that we could not live. That Jesus never had impure motives. Jesus was never deceitful. Jesus never spoke up um, for God, for people's approval. But rather, everything he did was to the will of God. And he did this even though it caused great harm to himself. It caused him in Gethsemane to bleed sweat drops of blood and tears and agony. And it took him to the cross. But because he took our sin upon himself and substituted himself for us and buried and rose with power on the third day, he becomes not only our pattern, but our pardon so that when I fail and I do things for the pleasure of people more than to please God, I don't have to hang my head in condemnation and shame and guilt or live in fear, but rather I can say, ah, Praise God for Jesus. There is one who has done this perfectly. And this Jesus also, as I look to his face, gives me the power to grow and to live for God's glory, reminding me that I am justified in Christ, that God is pleased with me because I am am in him and I don't have to nasal gaze or beat myself up, but rather just keep looking to the finished work of Jesus and to him as my mediator. As we are doing that, walking in that light, God, <laughs> he who began a good work will complete it. God is forming us, and it doesn't feel like it. He is shaping us more and more to look like Jesus. And the longer we live and the longer we walk in him, the purer our motives are and the purer we see God. And that may, that doesn't look like never doubting. It doesn't look like not having bad moments. It doesn't look like going through seasons of, of, of being off balance. But what it looks like is that in the midst of that, we move forward, we take those doubts to God, trusting that he will strengthen our faith, and we press on. And what God is doing in the, amid that is he's shaping us to care for others. Because as we live for God's glory, as Christ is being formed in us, it becomes less about us and more about other people. We begin to want other people to experience the joy that we have experienced. We begin to want other people to experience this resurrected hope that we experience. We begin to to want other people to, to be around Christ's throne when he returns. Remember, this is Paul's emphasis in this book. He's teaching people to live in light of a resurrected Jesus and in light of a Christ that will return, every single chapter in Thessalonians, he brings up the second coming of Jesus in the kingdom of God. And we have to live in light of that as well. Look at the care that Paul has. Paul's going to use three, and I'm almost done, three pictures of amazing care that God formed in him for the church of Thess as he sought to live with gospel integrity. First one is verse seven. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. I believe when he talks about burden here, what he's doing, and he's going to pick this up in the other verses, he's comparing himself to other teachers who come to town to make money off of people by presenting themselves as a product. And in general, when Paul came to a new city where there wasn't a strong gospel presence, he didn't often ask them for money. Um, Instead, he worked with his own hands as a tent maker or a leather worker day and night so that he could not be accused of those people with whom he doesn't have deep relationships with of using them for money. Now, we'll see as that church grows later on, he'll, he'll make an ask in a letter like, hey, We need your help as we take the gospel to others. But he said, rather than do that, I worked hard night and day. And this is the picture he gives us. He says, I was like, I was gentle among you. This word gentle is the first image that he gives us. It's a picture of an infant. Uh, Some people translate that word gentle as infant. Um, And he's saying, I was innocent among you. Um, I was, I didn't come. I think he's arguing with, with these bad motives. The second picture he's going to give us, he says, as a nurse nurtures her own children, or as a nurse, as a mother nurses her own children. And this is a picture of him coming to the church of Thess, these new Christians who were on the milk of God's word, and being gentle and patient among them. It's a beautiful picture. He cared for them like a mother cares. Or um, a nurse would care for a young child by making sure that they receive the milk of God's word. Verse eight, we care so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. He says, we didn't just preach to you. We opened up our lives, which demonstrated the gospel. It was a gospel of word and demonstration. We lived amongst you. That's how much we care for you. And he's probably, again, putting himself in comparison to these itinerant preachers and teachers who weren't living like that amongst them. Verse nine. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You are witnesses. And so is God of how. Devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves amongst you. Because you were new in the faith, we wanted to make sure that we model the gospel in a very intentional way. As you knew, like a father, this is the third illustration. The first is an infant, the second is a mother, and the third is a father. In that culture, fathers were responsible for educating children. And so he says, listen, we educated you with encouragement, with comfort, and we also charged you to live worthy of God. As we are seeking to live out the gospel with integrity, we do so setting our eyes on Jesus Christ, believing that God is forming Christ in us. And as we do that more and more... We receive the heart of Christ and we care for those who are around us. And this can become overwhelming. How do I care for people around me? I don't know where to start. I wanna encourage you. We're all in different seasons of life and it's looked differently in different seasons for different people. But as Christ is being formed in us um, as his ambassadors and as those who are on mission with the gospel, we uh, should be becoming disciple-makers. And the best way to do that is to think of and to make sure we look at our lives in concentric circles. Uh, think about the first circle being um, your family. If you are a, a husband or a, a wife, obviously that uh, needs to start with uh, cultivating uh, care and intentionality towards your spouse. If you are single and you have a roommate or friends who uh, may be on the milk of God's word, it means you uh, caring for them and living amongst them in such a way that they're growing in their faith. If you are a parent, your first responsibility is to uh, be living out the gospel and forming the gospel for your children. And maybe there's a neighbor that is around you, that God is calling you to live out the gospel, to make a gospel impression for. How do you do that? You do that with gentleness. You do that with intentionality. You do that seeing them as as a spiritual child, not in a condescending way, but as in a way that in which you have gospel hope and a vision for what would this person look like? What could their life look like if they put their faith and trust in Jesus. What could their life look like if Christ was formed in in them? If their life didn't center around them, but around him. And you could take that out. Perhaps there's someone at your church in your community group who was just uh, flailing and struggling in their walk. What does it look like for you to slow down in your life to make sure you have margin? And like Jesus... You say, come follow me. And you invite them into the regular rhythms of your life as best as you can. And you live out the gospel and you remember where you once were. I was praising God this week. And, and I'll say this, Don't we can't do this for everyone. Do for the one what which, which you wish you can do for the many. And then there's going to come times and seasons where when that person is built up into faith, where you need to let them know, now you go and you do this for someone else remember a time in my life when I was in college, um, and many of you know my story and how I um, really did not suffer well and didn't have a robust enough theology to keep me when everything around me fell apart. And so as a result, I, I turned back to idols. Um, and I remember meeting a, a pastor, and his pastor started pouring his life out. And he put three men around me who would just check on me and pray for me. And then I had a a woman named Sharon Griffin. I call her Mama Sharon who did the same. And I slowly began to get built up in my faith. But the encouraging thing is that pastor couldn't be with me all the time. This wasn't the first century. He didn't come say, come follow me. And I like lived in a cot beside him and we lived um, homelessly and going house to house. No, what he did is he would give me a book and say, hey, read this book. In a month, let's come back and let's talk about it. Or if he was traveling, he'd say, hey, come to this next town with me. Or sometimes he'll pick me up. I got to run errands. Come. I remember going to the cleaners with him. Come and run errands with me. Before a season, he put his focus on me. I remember he came and called me one day. He said, hey, I'm around the corner. I'm about to come to your apartment. I freaked out. Uh, the Lord had delivered me from some stuff, but there was some smells in the couch and in the walls and some roommates at the time, they had it a little smoky in there. And I remember him stepping into that space and he was like, huh, interesting. How are you doing? <laughs> and he sat down and he poured into me. He asked me some questions to make sure I wasn't involved in some behavior. And then he slid me a piece of paper that brought me on to the church part time where I can begin to work for the church. And that changed the direction of my life. This is a kingdom vision. And this is what the gospel does when it impacts us. It should make us other person-centered. And we should be able to care with people like a nurse, like a mother, and like a father. Not out of our own strength, but because we are experiencing the goodness of God towards us Daily, as he nurses us, as he mothers us, as he fathers us. But that takes intentionality. It takes abiding. So I close. I want to ask a question. If an article was to be written about Sojourn Midtown, what would it say? Would it say that we, as members of Midtown, are living in a way that can make a gospel impression? Or would it say that we are impressed with ourselves in our little kingdom? Would it say that we encourage people so that they can be formed into the image of Christ? Or would it say that we flatter people so that they would come to know us? My prayer for our church is that we would become and be a people that not only have the aroma of life, but who understand that this aroma that we give off sometimes will not be an aroma of life, but aroma of death and that we will persevere because we love Jesus. My prayer for us as a church is that people would say in this city that those Midtown members, Love people well. They care for people well. And even though I disagree with them, I cannot point to their lives and say that there is a habitual way of relating that says that they are self-centered, angry, and self-righteous. And I believe that that's what God can do in us as we receive moments like this as God's word and not